Put up your hand if you like doing exams. <laughs> really? I remember that. <laughs> Good. You like doing exams? As opposed to writing essays. Really? Yes. No. No. I finished theological college in 1984, and as we drove away from Newtown, I announced I will never again do another formal exam. <laughs> I've done a couple more degrees, I've written some really long formal essays, but I haven't done another exam. I do lots of them now, I'm a teacher, that's true. I, I did lots and I mark lots. Do you like Jack Randers? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, no, exactly. Uh, did anyone go to the University of Sydney here? Yes, that's right. That's great. University after which the whole city is named. Um, <laughs> in the middle of the quad, do you remember a couple of years ago? Absolute tragedy. The jacaranda tree died. And they replaced it with another tree so that we remember when it's time to have exams. Exactly. Well, we come today to a test. And that's how it's, it's portrayed for us. It's a test that makes all other tests to insignificance. It's probably one of the most famous stories in the Bible. I'm sure, for those of you who've been hanging around church for a while, that today's not the first time you've heard this story. It's not only one of the most famous stories in the Bible, it's actually one of the most famous stories in ancient literature. Uh, so much artwork has been uh, produced around this. It's the perfect story in many ways. It's haunting in its descriptions. It's infuriating. I hope you, your emotions were stirred as you heard it. It's riveting. It's genuinely shocking. But there is a resolution at the end. And when it comes to the resolution at the end, we actually see a demonstration of the Christian doctrine of substitutionary atonement. We talked about <coughs> imputed righteousness in the last session. This session, we're going to be focusing on substitution, substitutionary atonement. And I think this is one of the key doctrines of the Christian faith that I believe is poorly understood and implicitly under attack. And I hear it all the time, and I'm talking about in evangelical circles. Let me tell you what I mean. Most evangelical Christians are happy to say that Jesus is my representative. Now, that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But there is an enormous difference between having a representative who pleads a case on our behalf before God as a substitute. You don't believe me? Get in trouble with the law in Paul Quarry. I don't know where the courthouse is in Port Macquarie. Is that right in the town? Is it still used as the courthouse? Mm. Is okay? Mm. Get in trouble with the law. Find a lawyer to come and represent you in court. Would that be pretty easy? Mm. You got money? If you got money? Yeah. Find a lawyer to be a substitute for the penalty. Would that be easy? Mm. Impossible. There's nothing wrong with representation. Jesus is our representative. Let me underscore that. But it's not enough. 
Jesus is actually a substitute. And my head's been done in since Thursday night because um, on Thursday night, actually Ben was there at that place, we had an Old Testament lecture from uh, Queensland staying with us. And I told him I was going to speak on Abraham. And he said to me, he asked this question, not what I thought about over lunch. He said, who is the Christ figure in that story? I thought I went straight to the ram. And he looked at me. I wonder if it's Abraham. I wonder if Abraham is a Christ figure who has actually been faithful in the way that Jesus was faithful. Let's go back, come back to that later on. I don't really know the answer to that. I'm going to just throw it out there for something we'll talk about later. <laughs> Verse 2. God says to Abraham, take your son. Oh, really? A son has been born? Yeah, we skipped over that. It was pretty big, wasn't it? We've been looking forward to this son being born all the way through. And in the previous chapter, Isaac's been born. Okay? So take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Are you kidding me? And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, child sacrifice, we know, was practiced in Canaanite religion that was in the land beforehand. But child sacrifice has never been practiced in the God of the Bible. This is Abraham who passed the test. Certainly wouldn't receive a word of the children check from the Presbyterian Church of Australia. And I have so many questions in this passage. Uh, here's just a couple. I'm going to go through three. Firstly, what is the nature of the test? Secondly, what is the meaning of the test? And thirdly, what is the solution to the test? I have to do that with every test you go to. What's the nature of the test? What's the meaning of the test? What's the answer to the test? The solution to the test. Well, the, the story starts in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Now, I'm, I'm reading from the ESV. Yours, most of you've got NIVs. So it's a little bit different than what you've got. But my, mine begins with these three words, after these things. What's the NIV got again? Sometime later, after these things. Let's go with after these things. Three little words. After what things? Everything we've been talking about all weekend. Abraham has left Ur of the Chaldees. What is the promise, by the way? Have you got the land? Tick. Got the child? Tick. What a blessing that that is. It all seems... Fine. How many tests have there been for Abram along the way? Too many to count. He's passed some, he's flunked others. He's already had his 80th birthday party, but there were no children or grandchildren there. And there's been doubt that's recurring all the way through. And in Genesis 17, we, that's the circumcision chapter that we, we jumped over, God restates the promise to him and he says, your name was Abram. Do you know what Abram means? What Abram means? Abram means father. Abba, father, Abram, father. He means dad. But he changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Abraham means father of many. That's exactly right. So he changes his name from daddy to big daddy. That's right. Daddy to big daddy. Somewhere along the way, Sarai's name is also changed. Sarai means princess. And her name is changed to Sarah. That means 
princess. And so we get to the end of the story and we see Big Daddy and his princess have their baby. It's now time for the 90th birthday party for Sarah and basically everything ends and they all live happily ever after. If only Genesis ended at the end of chapter 21, it would be a lovely resolution. But as Genesis 22 starts, we have these haunting words after these things. She has scoffed at God. She has laughed at God. And now she's laughing in a very different way. The security of the future is assured through her son Isaac, through the land, through the blessing of God. But after these things, we read God tested Abraham. Now, we do value tests. I'm sure we value tests. If you go to the doctor, uh, I'm talking to ladies maybe, but if you go to the doctor, then you will be happy about the fact that the doctor has passed some exams. You happy about that? That's, that's pretty good. And when you go to the doctor, always the first thing the doctor always says, I'm going to take part of your body or some bodily fluid or something, I'm going to send you off for a, a test. That, that would make sense, isn't it? That's right. I'm going to be driving home to Sydney this afternoon and I'm working on the assumption that every other driver on the road has passed their driving test. Okay, if I fly in a plane, I'm really happy about the fact that the pilot has passed exams. And in James chapter 1, we read that testing is part of God's education for his children. That all makes sense, doesn't it? Let's give a test. But nothing prepares us for this. Offer Isaac as a burnt offering. Now, the reader of Genesis screams humanly at this point. Hasn't Abraham been tested enough up to now? Surely, again and again, he needs to be shown faith. Again and again. This story challenges us at so many levels. It challenges me intellectually. It doesn't make sense. For the last four talks, you've been tired of hearing me say, God's going to give Sarah a son. God's going to give Sarah a son. Well, it doesn't make sense. Once she gets the son, to offer him as a sacrifice. Emotionally, it doesn't make this is their son. Morally, we feel like we are skirting at the very edges of ethics in the story. At every level, at our cognition, at our emotion, in our will, we are shocked by this story. And it's not just a test for Abraham, it's a test for Isaac. If you look at uh, Genesis 23, verse 1, you'll see that the very first verse of Genesis 23 talks about when Sarah dies. And you can see that she's 127 when she dies. Isaac is born when Sarah is 90. And therefore, Isaac is 37 at the time of his mother's death. That's just simple maths. Much Jewish tradition puts the death, sorry, the binding of Isaac, this story, when Isaac's in his 30s. Now you think of a little baby, we know it's not a little baby. Who carries the wood? Isaac. Why does he carry the wood? Probably because he's 
Sorry? His father's 140. Yeah, that's right, exactly. Was he stronger than dad? He's at least a teenager. He could be in his 30s. It's a test for him as well. So early in the morning, they saddle up their donkey. They head off from Beersheba. And it's about 70 kilometres to go from Beersheba to Moriah. 70 kilometres, going at the pace that the average person walks, not like the runners in the morning, Paul Crow. Uh, it takes about three days. It's about a three-day trip. And when they arrive, they get to a mountain in the area of Moriah. Now, this is really, really key to this story. In 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, Solomon builds the temple. Remember the temple that Solomon builds? Does anyone know where he builds it? I'll tell you the answer. Mount Moriah. Why do all the Jews and the Israelis and the Palestinians, why are they all arguing over the Temple Mount today? Because it's not just any place. It's Mount Moriah. But at the time when Abraham is offering up Isaac, there is no Jerusalem. It's just somewhere out there. No city has been established yet. But this is going to become an incredibly significant spot in the history of salvation history. And so they approach the appointed place. And Isaac says, I want you to picture he's 32 or he's 28, verse 7, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt sacrifice? Abraham, who has again and again seen the wonderful provision of God, says, you probably know these words, Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. And they climb a mountain, Isaac with the wood on his back, Abraham with his knife and the fire, and the tension of the reader rises to a crescendo. Abraham builds an altar. Abraham binds his son. Abraham takes out a knife with which to slaughter his son. And you say, I, I can't cope with this. This is, this is primitive religion. This is why I can't cope with Christianity, because here, thanks guys, <laughs> just bind it and find a mortal something. You say I can't cope with the morality of the story, this is why I can't cope with Christianity. All this bloodthirsty stuff, all this sacrifice stuff, don't, you, don't they realise that human life has value? I just wonder how much of a higher ground we have in 21st century society. The ethics around the value of human life is one of the greatest challenges that we have in our generation. And whether it's the beginning of life, whether it's the end of life, whether it's the people who are weaker in life, we think we're such an enlightened world. But really importantly, the voice of God comes and says, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy. Abraham is not required to slay his son. This story in Jewish tradition is called the Akidah. And Akidah is a Hebrew word and it means the binding. It is the binding of Isaac, not the slaying of Isaac. He was not killed. 
God does not require child sacrifice, and that is really important. What does that all mean? I mean, this is a pretty significant text in the Bible. What's the meaning of the text? We've got to understand this text in terms of who Isaac is. We're living in a society at the time of Abraham that is a society that values primogenitor. What is primogenitor? Primogenitor means the firstborn. Any firstborn children here? Well done. Okay, you going to pull your hands down. Keep your hands up. Any firstborn sons here? Okay, sorry ladies, doesn't count. Okay, it's a sexist world. Sorry, back there. And if you are the firstborn, well, sorry, my hand is not up. I'm not a firstborn son. Riles me. <laughs> but the firstborn gets the lot. The firstborn gets a double portion. It's not just in Jewish society. It's also in traditional British society or Chinese society or wherever you come from. It's the lord of the estate. And it's quite simple. In an agrarian culture, if you have four sons and you do what we think is fair, which is you give equal portions to all four sons, okay, won't even enter into the daughters at the moment, just for living in that world, then uh, they each get a small farm. And the next generation, they all have four sons, and the next generation, they all have four sons. And within three generations, you're trying to eke out a living from a property that's the size of a postage stamp. You can't do it. And so therefore, everything belongs to the firstborn. And the firstborn receives everything, but the hopes of the family are there within the firstborn. Secondborn, I'm a secondborn son. Send your secondborn son off to the army and he can go and fight the French. And the thirdborn son, I don't know what we do with him, we'll send him to the church. The fourthborn son, I don't know, he can have a trade. But the firstborn son has the lot. But when does the secondborn son in British society or whatever traditional society is off fighting the French and dies and leaves behind a widow and three children, whose responsibility is that to care for firstborn sons. So the hopes of, remember this is not an individualistic society, it's a kinship society. The hopes of the next generation are all tied up in the firstborn son. In Exodus chapter 4, God says of Israel, you are my firstborn son. In Colossians chapter 1, when it says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, it's not saying that Jesus was created. It's saying that the hopes of the whole creation are there in the firstborn. And I don't know if you've noticed, but through the scriptures, God always requires the firstborn. The firstborn is a cattle mine. When you bring your tithes into the temple, it is not any 10%. It's the first 10%. The first fruits of the crops are mine, says God. The firstborn of the family is mine. Remember the exodus out of Egypt. Who was killed in the tenth plague? The firstborn of the Egyptians. Who was saved in the tenth plague? The firstborn of Israel. And so therefore in the firstborn come the, all the hopes of the nations. Who is Isaac? Isaac is the firstborn of the promise. He is Abraham's firstborn son, but he is also the firstborn of the promise. And God is saying, it all belongs to me. 
offer up your firstborn son of Isaac on Mount Moriah. It all belongs to God. Now, at some point, we would say, well, you know, but God did say, bind Isaac and, you know, and, and sacrifice your son. That sounds ethically wrong. No, it's not. We do not take innocent life because we are not the creators of life. But God is the creator of life. And every day, God takes life. That is God's province. So if God had required for Isaac to be slain, that would have been perfectly moral. But it didn't. And so Abraham is slain the firstborn of the promise to show that the promise belongs to God. But of course, God does not require this. He does not require that Isaac be sacrificed because a ram is found in the thicket. You know the story, it's there. And on Mount Moriah, a substitute is provided for the firstborn of the promise that finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. That is the nature of the test. The blood of bulls and goats ultimately cannot take away sin. But this place will be the place in years to come, as we saw the, the talk on Genesis 15, where not only turtle doves and, and, um, and goats, as we saw with Genesis 15, are brought along for sacrifice, will also be the place of substitution in the temple. When Jesus stands before Pilate within the temple court, he's on Mount Moriah. It becomes the place of substitutionary atonement. And this is all prefigured in what's happening with the ram that's caught in the thicket. Abraham didn't realise the significance of this, but this is the Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 to 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said, through Isaac shall all your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And so we know that as this story pans out, that the Lord provides, he provides a substitute. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides, a substitute has been given for Isaac. So what's the solution to the test? How does it all work? Abraham then calls that place Mount Moriah, 2 Chronicles 3, 1, the crucifixion of Jesus, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the Mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. It's a picture of substitutionary atonement. It's a picture of the one taking the penalty or taking the rap that Isaac should have taken. Now, we've got to remember that Abraham and Isaac are not the only characters in this story. God is the prime character that's being used through all this story. And God is not about to do evil. God needs to call in a debt of injustice. And that's why we need to have the whole sacrificial cult. But what hope is there for us 
in a world that is an unjust world for sinful humanity? Can God both execute justice and execute mercy? Well, here's one answer for you. Imputed righteousness. Can the righteousness of the few cover for the unrighteousness of the many? And the answer is yes. 50, 40, 30, 20? Yes. How does that happen? Does that happen because Jesus stands before the throne of God as our representative and plead his righteousness before God? Yes. But that's not enough. And normally, that is the gospel that I hear. It's the gospel of representation. And the answer is, it's 100% correct. It's just not enough. It's not just that Jesus is our representative. Jesus becomes our substitute. He is the one who takes the penalty for us. And please note, and I think this is the answer to my question on last Thursday night, who is the type of Christ? Is it the ram or is it Abraham? I think it's the ram. Because the name of that place is not on the mountain of the Lord it shall be obeyed. The focus here is not on the obedience of Abraham. That place is called, verse 14, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And what is provided? A substitute. So the dilemma is solved through substitution. The dilemma is solved at the Passover in terms of substitution where the blood of the Lamb of the Israelites takes the place of the person inside the house. The dilemma is solved later in the tabernacle and the temple where in the sacrificial cult the sacrifice takes the place of the sin of the person whose sin needs to be atoned for. Here is the amazing fact. I hope you're sitting down for this. You are. What God did not require of Abraham, he did require of himself. Abraham was not required to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah. A substitute was provided. But we see in the Gospel, on that place which that mountain is called the Lord it shall, it, on that mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. We see that the ultimate substitute becomes the one who was indeed God's very own son. Is Jesus our representative? Yes. Is that enough? Well, the Bible goes a whole lot more. It makes Jesus our substitute. And detractors from Christianity say, I can't cope with this. I mean, how can one person's righteousness substitute for another? How can one person give up their life and somebody else benefit from that? I mean, how can that sort of transfer across? It doesn't work. That person hasn't lived. Any parents in the room? 
Any parents? Good. Quite a few of you. Have you given up anything to be a parent? <laughs> My guess is a lot of you have given up a whole lot of stuff. And gladly, you've given up parts of your career. You've given up your social life for about 20 years. You've given up sleep. I don't know when that one finishes. You've given up privacy in your bathroom <laughs> if you've got a toddler. I'll tell you what you've done if you're a good parent. You've ransomed your life for your children. Let's just stop thinking about you. Are you a child? We're all, have you got parents? They did it for you as well. They substituted their life for yours. That's parenting. And you say, this doesn't make sense. It makes enormous amount of sense. Have you been hurt by somebody? What's our initial reaction to being hurt by somebody? Hurt them back. And so basically the most natural thing to do is that the offender needs to suffer. So we destroy their reputation, and they destroy our reputation. We just keep on spiralling down, don't we? In terms of he said, she said, they said, and we keep on going. And we become just like them. What's the way out? The way out is to absorb the pain. We may be just. We may be in the right. But often the best way to resolve the situation is to substitute my reputation for theirs. I'm not going to defend myself in this. Maybe the best way out is to defend my rights. Sorry, to substitute my rights rather than theirs. When we absorb the pain, when we become the substitute, then we see, even in that situation, here's the word, that there is atonement. And there actually can be reconciliation. Jesus talks about this all the time. He talks about loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. It's amazing. When you look at the Sermon on the Mount and all the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, this is a good exercise for you to do. And then go to the end of Matthew's Gospel and look at the events around the cross of Jesus. You can actually see Jesus enacts in the Passion and Crucifixion all the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. He absorbs the pain. Does Jesus take the penalty? Yes. Why? Because he's guilty? No, because he's a substitute. And so we see a beginning of a pattern, that it's a pattern of life. We substitute our lives for others. We substitute within, within guilt for others. And in the core of what God does, in the pain of injustice that is always felt and justice must be paid for, a substitute takes the penalty for us. If you don't believe in substitution, then go to work on the 25th of April this year. Isn't that what Anzac Day is all about? Those who lay down their life for our freedom, they weren't lawyers who went to represent us in a case. They were substitutes. That's what it's about. Substitutionary atonement is not a legal fiction. And if you think it is a little fiction, then you probably don't have any friends. We need to substitute pain. God is both just and justified. Jesus is not only our representative, 
He has real skin in the game. And so the ram is in the thicket, and we begin a pattern here that is worked out on Mount Moriah, through the temple, through to the crucifixion of substitutionary atonement. And so I think if you look at verse 12, and let me twist it for you, you should never twist scripture, but I'm going to do it. If Abraham was at the foot of the cross when Jesus died, Abraham would probably have paraphrased verse 12 and said, Now I know that you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son. It's a shocking story. We recoil at this story. But we recoil at this story because of our pride, because we don't understand the depth of substitutionary atonement. And so when Jesus turns up on the scene and John the Baptist sees him, what does John the Baptist say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the substitute. Paul says this, He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Substitute. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. It's a great story, Abraham, isn't it? The gospel is there in Abraham. It's a story of substitution. It's a story of imputed righteousness. But it is not a story because of the works righteousness of Abraham, but because of the faithfulness of Abraham. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that your plans are from all eternity, that you know the end from the beginning, and although it often takes generations for your plans to work their way through, thank you that you are faithful. Thank you that though we have erred from you, that the Lord Jesus is not only our representative, but he is also our substitute. And thank you that because of that, there can be real atonement, not only with you, but also with each other. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.